Ephesians chapter 1, and I covet your prayers. After service, I'll be running and uh, heading to a men's conference in Orlando, so you can be praying for me. I'll be teaching there. And then back on Sunday, we'll continue through our journey through the book of Matthew, God willing. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll read together Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Uh, so, Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for the church that we get to be a part of, Lord, and God, the fellowship of Calvary Chapels, Lord, how it's just a family that we're blessed to be a part of, Lord. And thank you for the family here in Miami that you've given to us, Lord, that you've grafted us into. Lord, tonight we just pray for Frank and Andrea, Lord. We pray for so many, God, going through different health issues in this season. Pray that you just be strengthening them. And Lord, as the body, God, may we be praying for one another, caring for one another, ministering to one another, Lord. Uh, so God, I pray that you'd help each of us, help each of us to sort of let go and detach from maybe the crazy day at work or school, uh, maybe the fight we had on the way here, Lord, and let go of those things and just say, Lord, what do you have for me tonight, God? So Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd fill us afresh and anew. We know that you tell us apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord. So I pray you'd fill me to overflowing and that you'd fill each and every one of us to overflowing as well, God. So we love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're continuing this, I guess you'd call it a series. We're taking a break from the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Numbers is about to go into the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is almost a repeat, repeating to the new nation of Israel. The older people have all died. Now you have this younger generation, and they're being told once again all the word of God from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So we took a, a brief pause, and we're going through the 13 Calvary distinctives. Really, there's 12. But Chuck has a preface, and then he has another thing, and a third thing, and a fourth thing. So we're just going with 13 of them. So the first one is the call to ministry. The second one is God's model for the church. We've looked at those two. And then tonight, we're going to be looking at church government. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 22. And it says, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him... To be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So who's the chief of the church? It's Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head honcho. He's the boss. It's, he's the one that we look to for everything and anything pertaining to church. Chuck Smith, he states, we recognize that the New Testament doesn't give a clear, definitive statement of God's preference for church government. In Scripture, we find three basic forms of church government. Two of them are in the New Testament, and the other one developed through church history. So again, this is a distinctive of Calvary Chapel. We're about to look at how we approach church government. There's other churches that they approach their government different. This isn't for you to now go kicking the doors down of those churches and telling them what they're doing is wrong, right? That's what makes us distinct. So these three different church governments, the first one is episkopos, which is a word in the Greek which literally means bishop. It means bishop. The second word, again, there in the Greek is presbyteros. And that's the Greek word for elder. So we see bishop all over the pastoral epistles. We see the word elder all over the pastoral epistles. And then the last biblical model we see for government is the Moses model. And that's who we are as a Calvary Chapel. And we'll go through that in depth. If some of you like bonuses, anyone here like bonuses? All right. I'll take your bonus if you don't want your bonus, right? Uh, a bonus church government is congregational rule. Congregational rule. We'll look at that later, how biblically that never ends well. But the first one, bishop or episcopos, it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. And getting a little bit of ahead of myself here, each of these church governments, they're good and they're special and they're dependent upon the character of the men leading the church. There's people that have been burned by the Moses, by the Moses model 
There have been people that have been a part of a church that it's a bishop that's leading it, and they've been burned by that. There have been people that have been burnt by churches that are led by elders and board members, and they've been burned by that. So God needs a man that is of good character and is of humility to use him in a faithful way in church leadership. But there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, that's that word, episcopos, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, a bishop is a man that has to be a man of good character. Also has to be a man that's not a new convert, not a novice. And he has to be a man that he's a, he's a family man, right? He's a good husband. He's a good family man. He's good wherever he's at. He's not a hypocrite. And it's important that in leadership you elect people that are of good character and humility, right? It makes sense, but within our government, many governments, that's not necessarily what happens. But within church, it's so important to follow a man that's following after God. The Episcopalian church was founded on this type of church government. Their distinctive was this is how they follow church government. The second one can be found in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. You can just write it down. I'll just read one verse here. It's the prispeteros, and that's the word elder. And in Acts 14, verse 23, it tells us, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And you have the Presbyterian Church. Hopefully you're hearing these words. They sound familiar. But the Presbyterian Church was founded upon this type of church government. You need a board for the decorations. You need a board for the men's ministry, a board for the women's ministry. Everybody gets a board and a group of people to vote on things. And then that bonus one was congregational rule. I wrote down here, you can think of mob mentality, right? Mob mentality. And biblically, the congregation at large is usually not after the heart of God. No offense to you, right? No offense, but this is what happens in government, church government. If we're honest, mobs are usually fueled not by the truth or the heart of God. They're fueled by emotion, and they enable one another to more and more evil because they believe that their large numbers protects them from immorality. We see that in Atlanta this past week. We saw it in Portland. We've seen it all over the world that when a mob begins to rule, do things get better? No. Chaos ensues. A couple of scriptures on this. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. We know that the prophet, the priest at that time, Samuel, his heart is broken. And he speaks to the Lord. The Lord tells him, tell the people the truth. He warns them, if you elect a king, he's going to take your children, your money, your land. He's going to attack you. It's going to be difficult. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, it tells us, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Another instance of the, of the congregation or of the mob is Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. It says, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Another example, Numbers chapter 14, it tells us in verse 1, All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. 
Again, the, the whole congregation, usually they spur one another on. When they're ruling, there's no one there to stand before God for them and to stand before, before them as the Lord. Dangerous things happen. I was just listening to a podcast on leadership and it was saying how leaders have to keep their minds and emotions separate from the mob that they're ruling. You could think of a business that you're leading a mob or a school. You're a teacher, kindergarten teacher, right? You got a little mob of kindergartners that, that you're ruling. And a good leader has to keep themselves emotionally separate from the mob in order to help the group stay balanced, to keep the balance within the group because if the group if the mob gets their emotions too high after a win it can often lead to pride arrogance and then lack of preparation and planning the opposite is true as well that if the mob right if the group that you're leading goes through a loss and they don't check that emotion it often leads to panic stagnation and depression and a good leader is able to stand outside of it, see what's going on. And when things get too high, hey, let's humble ourselves. We did a good job, great job, but we have to continue to prepare and seek the Lord. If it gets too low, you encourage the same group of people. Hey, the Lord is still in this. It was a difficult season, but you bring and you bring that balance. Finally, the last archetype, if you would, for church government. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. It's the Moses model. And we know that the Moses model recently it gets a lot of flack because of the men that have fallen away. Men that have stopped being obedient to the qualifications that they're supposed to live in and through like we recently saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 19, it says, Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear, that's his respect, his reverence, may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Here in Exodus, the people trusted Moses to speak with God and then relay what God was speaking to Moses and to the nation of Israel through Moses. Moses went to God on behalf of the people and he interceded on behalf of the people for God. Moses was that go-between between the nation of Israel and between God. And this was a heavy load for Moses, especially when you're dealing with Two million people. Two million people in tents, right? Plus their wives, plus their kids. How many of you like going on family vacation with 50 people, right? 100 people. Think about family vacation with two million people. And you're not on the beach. You don't have your private houses. You're out in the desert, in the wilderness, right? Things are going to heat up quickly. But God, he prepared Moses for that leadership. And then God gave Moses Aaron. Aaron was Moses' second, right? His second in charge, his second command to encourage Moses to be there for him. Scripturally, we don't see much of that, but he was Moses' second. And then God gave to Aaron all of the Levites, the whole priesthood. They were given to follow Aaron and whatever Aaron said. The spiritual needs and the spiritual work for the nation of Israel was done through the Levites with the oversight of Aaron. And then Aaron was oversaw by Moses. After that, then God used Moses' father-in-law to give him even more wisdom. And the structure for governing the nation of Israel, in a sense, was born. We go a couple pages to the left in Exodus chapter 18. We'll see this interaction between Moses and his father-in-law. It's good to have godly, biblical family members. And here in Exodus 18... We'll read through this, verse 13. It says, And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, 
Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another. And I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who, you are with, who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. And sometimes within church leadership, and it can creep into our lives as well, we think that we are someone's Jesus. And somehow if I'm not there to minister to them, if I'm not there to speak to them, they're just going to fall apart and be destroyed. Sometimes we have to let people go so that they can seek the Lord on their own. And here what Moses needed to do is to pour into other godly men so that those godly men could pour into the nation of Israel. We continue verse 19. He says, listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you. But every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all these people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses... He did the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Again, Moses was charged to find men of good character and show them the word of God and then enable them to carry out the word of God. And it's sweet, right? Some of them were given the ruler, the authority over 10 people. Others over 50 people. Some others over 100 people. Others over thousands of people. We have to just fit wherever God puts us to fit in. If God's given you 10, be faithful to those 10. Love them as much as possible. Don't just be covetous and angry. Why can't I have the 1,000? Be faithful with the 10. So who was the leader of Israel? Moses. No, who was the leader of Israel? God. God was the leader of Israel. Then who was second, right? Moses. Moses was the man there between God and the people. Then you have Aaron. Then you have the Levites, then you have the leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So who's the leader of the church? Right, it's God, Jesus, Trinity, you can say Holy Spirit if you want to, right? All three of them, the three one. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. This is Colossians 1 verse 17. And he is the head of the body, the church. We find this over and over in Scripture. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it tells us, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then finally, Matthew 16, verse 18, we went through this last week, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So who's the leader of the church? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ, he's the head. Then it's the senior pastor. And then the senior pastor, our church, what we have is we have a board of pastors. We have a board of elders. And then we have a group of overseers. So same type of mentality. The senior pastors to continue to seek the heart of the Lord. And then pour into these other men that should then go on and pour into the lives of the people. Chuck Smith says, so when we came to Calvary Chapel and established the bylaws, we didn't create a Presbyterian form of government. It was more of an Episcopal form of government for Calvary Chapel. We believe that God's model is that the pastor is ruled by the Lord and aided by the elders to discover the mind and will of Jesus Christ for his church. This in turn is implemented by all the assistant pastors. 
So again, it's not just one man that says it's my way or the highway. It's not just one man that says, hey, I'm God's anointed. Don't you speak out against God's anointed. We'll look at that later on. It's a man that's submitted to the authority of the Lord and also submitted to the authority of that board of pastors, the board of men around him that God has brought alongside of him. So the leader of the church, the head, is Jesus Christ. Then beneath Jesus Christ, you have a senior pastor, a senior pastor who, like Moses, needs to constantly be spending time with God and abiding with Jesus Christ. Again, we saw it so many times that whenever Moses was faced with difficulty or faced with something he had never dealt with before, he says that he would take some time and get the mind and the heart of the Lord. A senior pastor needs to spend time with God, needs to be abiding in Jesus Christ, seeking Jesus' will, guidance, and vision for his life and for the church at large. That when things that are difficult, when things pop up that aren't plain in Scripture, they say, wait, I need to get some time alone with the Lord and hear from Him. This is what a senior pastor should be doing. Then that senior pastor, they have a board of pastors, a board of elders, a group of overseers. That's what we do here. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, throughout the New Testament, whenever it speaks of church leadership, the Bible uses words like bishop and elder. We looked at that earlier. It also uses the word deacon, second half of 1 Timothy 3. And these three words, bishop, elder, and deacon, they're almost interchangeable. They're peppered all throughout the New Testament for the pastoral epistles. Then you also have words like shepherd, pastor, and minister. And these three words are also interchangeable. Same person, but different roles, different hats that they're wearing. A bishop... That's where we use the word overseer. A bishop is someone who oversees or manages a specific aspect or ministry within the church. Right? Maybe you work in retail. You could say you're the bishop of Home Depot. You could say that if you want, right? If you really want to say that. I'm the bishop of the men's shoes in Macy's. You could say that if you want. Bishop and overseer, it's the same word. Maybe you like chess. Maybe you just like overseeing. So you pick which word you like, right? That word elder literally speaks of a more mature person, a more mature person within the church, whether it's age, but more importantly, is spiritual age. Right? There are many young men that God can age in a hurry and love the Lord and follow the Lord. Sadly, there are many elderly men, hopefully not in our church, but out in the world that they're elderly men, but they're not walking with the Lord whatsoever. And you don't want to get insight from an old, angry, drunk man or drunk woman, right? Oh, they're an elder. Let me hear what they have to say. No, you want to make sure that they are mature spiritually. Then finally, that shepherd or pastor or minister is someone who cares for the flock, feeds the flock, tends the flock, defends the flock, sometimes has to separate the flock, and even at times clip some of the flock, some of their hair, right? In the Bible, what we see over and over and over again is that God calls a specific man to do a specific work for him. Then God surrounds this man with other godly men who recognize God's calling and selecting of that man to accomplish God's purposes. We read about Moses. He's given Aaron. He's given the Levites. He's given the thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens overseers for each of those. We could think of David. Did David fight all the battles for Israel by himself? Who did the Lord bring him? The mighty men of valor, right? A group of a ragtag group, and they're in the cave there with David. Later on, you can read of David's cabinet members. It's interesting. Saul, he doesn't share the glory or the church government, the Lord, the government of Israel with anyone. However, David, he has a cabinet, he has a mighty men of valor. Was Paul by himself in ministry? No, he has Barnabas, he has Timothy, he has Titus. Even Jesus, he prayed on the Lord all night long. He prayed and asked the Lord before he selected the 12 disciples. So what we see over and over in Scripture, Jesus, he doesn't select a board, right? Okay, let's have a board meeting. Who are the 12 people that we should call to be our disciples? No, Jesus, he seeks the mind of the Lord, and then he asks these men to be a part of the ministry with him. The key thing... 
no matter what church government your church has, is to not select men for boards or leaderships or pastors because of money or fame or degrees or connections and networking or gifts or talents. That's when things get dangerous. The key is to select men who love Jesus, love their family, and are of high character and high humility. This is the key for church government. For some of the ladies here, that's the key in in a spouse. You want a man that loves Jesus. He's a man of high character, and he's a man of high humility. Not too many churches crash and burn because their church leaders did not have enough talent or didn't have enough giftings. Many churches crash and burn and go through disaster because their leaders were not men of high character or high humility. They had giftings, they had power, they had ability, but if the ability and the power grows larger than the character, I think it was Joe Foy says, he gets top heavy and then it crashes and burns. We need to be men and women of high character, high humility, and love Jesus Christ. Another quote from the book, Chuck Smith says, It's necessary to have godly men who recognize that God has called and ordained the senior pastor of the church. Men who will work with the pastor and support those things that God is directing him to. And then the pastors to implement this within the church. We want men who are seeking God and the will of God. We are blessed with such men on our board and I thank God for them. Now real elders are not a bunch of yes men, but they are men yielded to the Holy Spirit. Right? Giving you a little sneak peek into some pastor's meetings, right? some board meetings. Sometimes it gets a little spicy in there. If I'm honest, sometimes I enjoy it. I enjoy it when it gets spicy, when it's super boring and everybody's okay. You can ask my wife and my dad, so I'm like, ah, it was kind of boring today, right? It's good. But sometimes it can get a little spicy, right? It can get a little iron sharpening iron. There's hot, there's heat, things, sparks, chunks of iron are flying, right? So you don't want just a group of yes men. You don't agree with me, you're out. No, the Lord, he's given the body to have different men with different spiritual gifts to care for the flock. And we don't have time to go through all the Proverbs, but a wise man seeks counsel. A wise man seeks counsel. Then what does Proverbs 18.1 say, right? Let's turn there. This is one of my favorite verses. What a verse of warning. Proverbs 18.1, a little bit of a tangent, but maybe the Holy Spirit has this verse for someone here. The verse is on my heart. I'll be sharing this at the men's conference. But Proverbs 18, verse 1, it tells us, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Again, that's why it's dangerous for church leaders to begin to isolate themselves when they're not spending time with the flock or the people of the church. When they're in the green room, right, and only in the office and never with the people, dangerous things happen. Dangerous things happen to us as men and women when we begin to isolate ourselves away from the church body. A church should have a group of elders. That's why it's in 1 Timothy 3. Because the elders are given the different responsibilities in the church to care for the flock. A couple of scriptures, you could just write these down. Acts chapter 16 verse 4, it says that they went through the cities. They delivered them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So a group of apostles, the apostles, the only apostles, right? And elders, they gathered together and they figured out the decrees to hand out to each city. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 tells us, From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we'll see this group of elders once again. And what we'll see is that they need to be men of high character. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, 
that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded. There we talked about the steadiness, how a leader needs to be steady, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So elders, they're needed within churches, and they need to be men of high character. Peter speaks of himself as an elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. Go a couple pages in your Bible to the right. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. I'll begin reading there. It tells us, The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. An elder is to be a living example of how we are to be living. That, that's why it's such a high standard. An elder is supposed to be an example, a man after God's own heart, a man of prayer, a man of God's word, a, a family man, a man that works hard, a man that is spoken well of at work, at Publix, at the bar. No, he doesn't go to the bar, right? We read that, right? Not given to wine. Everywhere he goes, he's a man that is well spoken of. How do your coworkers talk about you, right? How does your family, your in-laws, how do they talk about you? How do your children speak about you? Your spouse, how do they speak of you? We should be good examples everywhere we go. Each of us should look at this standard and not just say, oh, I don't want to be in church government, so I'm going to stay away from this. No, we should look at this standard and say, Lord, are you calling me to this? Are you calling me to go in deeper with you? Lord, do you want me to be a good example to those around me? Because if we're honest, everyone's an example. We will be an example whether we like it or not. We're either going to be a good example or a bad example. We're going to be the example of what not to do. Or we're going to be that example of, man, I'm going to start following what that person is doing and their love for the Lord. Some say the Moses model is not for the New Testament church. But we don't see Paul or Timothy or John or the other church leaders going to a board of elders or a congregational board to ask permission to do something that God has laid on their heart. How many of you have come from a congregational church? Anybody have come from a different denomination before they came here, right? It can get bogged down in government. And nothing changes within the church. And there, it can get evil. It can get two-faced. It can get backstabbing within the different boards. It's dangerous. But sometimes it works. If all of the people are submitted to God and His Word, it could totally work. Chuck Smith, in the book, he gives an analogy how uh, the second church he was a part of, it was growing. God was doing incredible things. And then one Sunday night, he decided to do something different with a small group. And instead of having the pulpit and teaching, he put the chairs in a circle. Instead of reading three hymnals and singing through three hymnals, he did a few songs a cappella. Then he had prayer group. And then he did the Word of God. He was super blessed. People were encouraged. The Holy Spirit was there. And then the next day, the board of elders said, come to the principal's office, right? And they told him, we never want you to do that again. What in the world do you think you're doing? And then that's what he said, this isn't the church for me, right? He puts it that it's a fine line between being a pastor and being a hireling if you're picked and elected by the congregation or a board. Because then perhaps the pastor is more fearful of what the board or the congregation is going to vote yes or no than how the Lord is leading him. After church, I encourage you, 
Grab a group of 10 people and just ask, where does everyone want to go out to eat? And see what time you actually leave the church parking lot, right? <laughs> On family vacation, I encourage you, just put it out there in the air. Hey, what does everybody want to do today, right? Better pull up a comfortable seat because they'll be stuck there for a while. Unless there's one person that the group respects, that's a person of high character, that has a proven track record of not only caring about, not just caring about their own interests, but caring about the interests of others. And the same is true for a church. There needs to be a man that God has put in that position, not a man that has strived to get there or connived his way to get there or networked his way to get there, but a man that God has put there. The Moses model is not saying that each senior pastor has the identical spiritual authority that God had given to Moses. That's not what that is saying. It's just a model and a format to follow for governing God's church. Moses, anytime someone would step up against them, they'd have leprosy, the earth would swallow them whole, snakes would come out. That's not for today. That was then. This is all speaking of a model that we follow for church government. And even Moses had to deal with the consequences when he misrepresented God. And that's why there's qualifications. And we can gather that if there are qualifications for elders and pastors, then we need to say that there may be characteristics that can disqualify someone from being an elder or a pastor. Right? If there's qualifications, that also means there are disqualifications. We go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and here we're given the biblical prescription if you're in a church, even in this church, we went through this, I believe. If, even if you're in this church and a pastor, an elder, a deacon, myself, do something that is not according to the word of God, this is how you deal with it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 through 22. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. If there is truly activity going on in the life of a pastor or an elder that can be founded by two or three witnesses, then it is the job of the fellow pastors and fellow elders to call them out and to rebuke him. This is the beautiful balance of God's prescription here. If there are accusations and there's two or three people, it's not a group of good old boys and we protect each other even when we fail and mess up. No, if there's something there that disqualifies a man from leadership, it needs to be dealt with. How do we deal with it? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So when someone falls, you don't kick them while they're down. You, you hope to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Being reminded, we can all sin. We can all fall short of the glory of God. Pastors and elders rebuking fellow elders and fellow pastors is biblical. We can think of Paul when he shows up to the agape meal with Peter not sitting with certain people and being a bit racist there, right? And Peter, in the presence of the whole entire agape meal, in front of the whole church picnic, right, next to the cotton candy and the popcorn, starts calling out Peter, telling him what he's doing is unbiblical. We need to love God and his word more than our love for relationships with people. We have to have the fear of God more than we have the fear of men. Fear of men is a snare. The fear of God gives us life, gives us so much. That's why the Moses model, it's just a model. It's an example that we're following. 
Today, the way we apply it is that we call out one another when we are living in a way that perhaps will disqualify us. And then it's even harsher when someone is living in a manner that is disqualifying from 1 Timothy 3 and those pastoral epistles. Now, the Moses model. Have there been pastors who've walked away from their godly character and disqualified themselves and abused or hurt people? Sadly, yes. Sadly, yes. But this can be said of every type of church government. There are men and women who are on boards of churches that don't want to go according to God's word and biblical standard on marriage, on gender, and on many other things. It's not a Moses model, but is it biblical? Is it doing well? No, it's just as rotten. There are also others that they hijack a board. There's bribery. There's all types of evil and sin that happens. They can even get a pastor fired because he said something biblical that pierced them to the heart and they didn't like it. Every type of church government can be influenced or affected by men or women who are committing sin. We shouldn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? If you've ever had a bad experience at a restaurant, has anyone here had a bad experience at a restaurant? You just say, that's it. No more restaurants ever again, right? Is that what you tell your wife, honey, we're never eating out again? No, you try another place. And we should not allow the imperfections and the sin of a leader to rob us from the joy of gathering together with the saints. And for those who are doing well, you should encourage them. Those church leaders, not me, the other church leaders, right? You should encourage them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this is where, if I could be honest, it gets weird me teaching these parts of the Bible, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. It tells us, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14 now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient to all. See that no one renders evil for evil, but always pursue what is both good for yourselves and for all. Again, the balance there to love on those and recognize those and admonish those, esteem those, but also warn those who are walking unruly. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 17, Hebrews 13 says, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy, and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Finally, verse 24, Hebrews 13 says, Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Again, the people who are pastors, especially in this church, the people who are elders and deacons, they're not here to get power. They're here to honor God and love on the flock. That's why they're here. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. It's to be obedient to the Lord. And then there's also something hanging over our head that anyone who is a teacher is going to be held to a higher and stricter judgment. And that's always something I'm thinking about. Lord, have I rightly represented you? And Lord, have I rightly represented your word? So if someone is speaking the word of God to you, man, listen to them. They're watching out for your souls. They need to, we need to, I need to give an account for every word that I say to someone. Churches and people, there's no doubt they've been heartbroken by a leader who sinned against the Lord and sinned against them, and that's absolutely terrible. But there's a great danger to allow prior hurts and heartbreaks in our lives to drive us to unbiblical decisions. And that's only going to make that pain worse. We talked about restaurants. Restaurants, they do you bad, you still go to another one. But we need to realize that the sin of that leader or that church doesn't give us a free pass to sin as well. People and churches will oftentimes look to church government models that aren't found in Scripture, thinking it will protect them from the sinful nature of man. And it won't. It will only make matters worse. 
the churches that are looking for government models from companies or from, right, the government itself. We need three, three branches of church government, right, for checks and balances, right? Dangerous things can happen when you look for extra biblical things that God has already given a biblical prescription for. It's just as the person who sadly has been sexually abused, and instead of turning to the Lord, they turn to a homosexual lifestyle, only making it worse. Sin in your life that someone else does does not equal now you should sin as well. The person who was abused in church or heartbroken in church, let down in church, now don't go out and not attend church any longer because it will only make matters worse. We have to be reminded of that. You're here at church, so you don't have to be reminded, right? But we need to be reminded so that we can remind others as well. It makes me think of that C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I encourage you, if you've been hurt by a past church, a past ministry, man, my heart breaks for you. I hate it whenever the Lord gets a black guy or gets misrepresented. But turn to the Lord. Run to the Lord. Perhaps you were serving at another ministry and now you don't want to serve because you don't want to be hurt. Get right with the Lord and don't allow them to rob you twice. Don't let them rob you twice of having that church family that broke or was dissolved and now not serving because of a pastor. No, press into the Lord and seek God all the more. Just like we need to be vulnerable in order to love, the same can be said of trust. The moment we trust anyone or anything, it gives them the opportunity to let us down. It is what it is. But that's why our ultimate trust needs to be in Jesus Christ. Who is the head of the church who promises that he will never leave us and never forsake us and he's able to use what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good? Because more often than not, your testimony of being brokenhearted and being brought back to the family of God and serving God once again is a testimony that you can use to minister to someone else. Because sadly and unfortunately, in the coming months and years, I'm sure there's going to be other ministries where men disqualify themselves from ministry and break the hearts of the people. We need to be wise and biblical and attend churches that are only biblical who are making sure the elders, the deacons, the pastors are fulfilling the qualifications we find in the pastoral epistles. Not novices, not men that are driven by talents, but men who have been tested, men that we wait and men that are shown blameless. Finally, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 8. Sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If your Bible has 1 Timothy chapter 8, we've got to talk afterwards. 1 Timothy chapter 3. My dad would always tell me, Zach, it's a lot easier to go slowly than to have to go in reverse. It's a lot easier to go slowly than to have to go into reverse. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Verse 10 is the key here. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. All this to say, if David was heartbroken from Ahithophel, if Elisha was broken by Gehazi, if Jesus was brokenhearted from Judas and Paul brokenhearted by Demas, why should we think it's strange when we're brokenhearted by someone that we love? In Psalm 55 verse 12 it says, this is David's psalm, he says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance, 
We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God. Again, heartbreak, it's just a part of life. But may we not now harden our hearts from people or from church or from ministry or from Jesus because we've been brokenhearted. I'm sure David and Elisha and Jesus and Paul were all heartbroken that someone they served alongside of, someone they loved, someone they trusted, broke their trust and was unfaithful to them. However, we cannot allow the disobedience and broken trust of church leaders to cause us to turn away from the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ and disobey his word. He tells us to not forsake the assembling of the, of the brethren. Don't do that. We need to continue to be at church. We should serve with joy and with gladness. Don't allow them to rob you twice. Be reminded of Jesus and his words. Matthew 28 verse 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Again, our God, he's a great God. Sometimes he uses what was meant for evil, and he uses it for good. Maybe those ministries that fell apart, those pastors that fell, were a part of your life story to bring you here for such a time as this. Be obedient to God. Be obedient to his word. So those are the three forms of church government. You got the deacons, you got the elders, and you have that Moses model. All three get abused. All three have black eyes. But that's what we at Calvary, Miami, Calvary Chapel, that's one of our distinctives. Uh, one quote here, I thought it was great, Brian Weed. There's a podcast from the Calvary Philly guys. It's Calvary Distinctives 2.0. So if you want my hour teaching in 30 minutes, you can listen to that, right? Brian Weed, he says, God's vagueness is just as intentional as his exactness. God's vagueness is just as intentional as his exactness. So that's why in the New Testament, God doesn't say this is the ultimate church government model. It's vague on purpose because in other areas, uh, for instance, right, in Africa and in India, these men are having difficulty finding other godly men that they can entrust as elders. So they have to elect different bishops, and you have one man who's a pastor of five different churches or ten different churches. But here within our culture, we're blessed. There's lots of godly men here, lots of godly men that are serving the Lord. So I encourage you, plug in, serve the Lord, and seek him all the more. And if you don't like the church government, maybe the Lord has another church for you, right? But that's what we do here. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for tonight, Lord. Thank you for your word. And God, I pray again, you'd help me, Lord. No, apart from you, I can do nothing, Lord. Help me to stay humble, Lord, to stay small in my own eyes, God, and to continue to press into you, Lord. Lord, for all the church leaders, God, may each of us here be pressing into you. May we be looking at our, our marriages.